Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take your Bibles out and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 for the reading of this morning's scripture. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 21. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was whether then it was or I they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. While you have your Bibles out, please turn with me to the uh, book of John, just really quickly. It'd be John chapter 20. Then we're going to begin reading in verse 24. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. John writes, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. One of the most common mistakes that many people make today when they look to the first century and the people that lived then is that they think that the people who lived in that time are somehow less intelligent than than people today. Many people think that those in the first century were uncritical and inherently superstitious. And, and they think that they would just believe anything that people told them because, you know, they're just not as smart as we are today. Uh, the late C.S. Lewis actually calls this chronological snobbery. Uh, it's the idea that people in the past were just somehow dumber than we are today. That, that, that they were more naive than we are today. And if they didn't and they don't have the ability to, to work through complex issues like we do. They can't discern the difference between truth and fiction like we can today. Many people believe that somehow, some way, that those people were really easy to fool when it comes to things like miracles and people coming back from the dead. But the problem with this way of thinking is that it's just simply not true. The fact is, if you study history in ancient cultures, let me get rid of this, if you study history in ancient cultures, particularly first century Jewish culture, what you'll discover is back then people were very intelligent and very wise, and they were educated and able to reason, and they were just as critical and suspicious and unbelieving as people are today. Right? They were just as cynical as skeptics are today, and that's what we see here in Matthew. One of Jesus' own disciples, someone who was with him for three and a half years. He didn't believe the words of his own friends and co-laborers. I mean, think about this. Thomas had spent every day for the last three and a half years with these men, living together, working together, serving together, listening to Jesus teach, watching miracles. These men were like his family, and he had no reason to not believe them. But when they said to him, we have seen the Lord, we have witnessed that he is risen, he replied, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand inside, I will never believe. I want you to hear those words. I will never believe. Does this sound like a naive person who would believe anything that was told to him? No. Sounds like people today, actually, right? Unless I see it with my own eyes. Unless somebody proves it to me beyond all doubt. I will never believe. Unless God comes down here himself and shows himself to me, I'm never going to believe. Thomas sounds just like somebody who's skeptical and <clears throat> atheistic even today. Unless somebody proves it to me, I'm not going to believe. And what you'd have to understand is that 
Thomas wasn't alone. The fact is that people in the first century were every bit as rational as they are today, every bit as critical as they are today, and every bit as stubborn. Let's just be honest, right? And, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is every bit as unbelievable to them as, as, as it is to some people today. And the reason for that is, is the people in the first century knew what people know today. And that is, dead people don't come back to life. That's the fact that they all understood. Dead people don't come back from the grave. That was just as true then as it is now. And that leads to really two important things for us to consider. First, it leads us to understand that the people in the first century were not willing dupes who were easily fooled into believing some fairy tale. And the second is, faith in the resurrection of Christ has endured for 2,000 years, and it must have done so for a compelling reason. I mean, think about this. There are people today who believe, without a doubt, that a man who lived in the first century named Yeshua, which we transliterate and call Jesus in English, lived, died on a Roman cross, was buried in a tomb, and three days later was raised back to life and appeared to his followers. People believe that today. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ has endured. And that's why, in fact, we're here today. That's why we're gathered this morning. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we went to the, the park at dawn and braved the cold. This is not some fable that we just tell each other from time to time. This isn't just some tradition that we observe. This wasn't just a fanciful story that grandma told you. We believe without a doubt that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And that is, that is why there's a holiday that's why everyone, including unbelievers, are celebrating this holiday. That's why this holiday has changed people's plans. People are planning their activities for the next week around this. They're going places, doing things, hanging out with family. And even more than that, this event of Christ's resurrection is the reason the early church, which was predominantly Jewish, went from worshiping on a Saturday, according to their traditions, and started worshiping almost immediately on Sunday <clears throat> because of the enduring faith in the resurrection. Pastor and author Mark Dever, he talks about this very phenomenon in one of his books, and he wrote, these first century Jews, thousands and thousands of them, suddenly changed their normal day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Sociologists tell us that the most ancient parts of a culture are found in its religious rites. And they are the most conservative elements of culture, the least likely and the slowest to change. What then can, be, can account for this sudden change around the Mediterranean among thousands of first century Jews from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday? It was the resurrection. That's why we worship on Sunday today, by the way. That's why we celebrate Easter even now. It's because people of every generation from that time until now have become convinced that Jesus actually rose again from the grave. And they were convinced to the point that many would risk their lives and people would, would risk all that they had to confess that faith. Even still today, there are people around the world that are being killed who will not deny the faith. And we are talking about this not just people 
of a certain group, right? We're talking about all walks of life, right? People of all educational levels, people with no education to people with many doctorate degrees, people from all economic backgrounds, from the poorest to the poor to the richest to the rich, from all nationalities, from all different family dynamics, all confessing the same truth that Jesus rose from the grave. And this includes people who grew up during the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. This also includes people who grew up uh, during the time that was called modernism, when it was all about technology and science. And this includes people today who have embraced, or culture that has embraced postmodernism, where there's no such thing as objective truth. There are still people today holding on to this foundational truth. Even now, in our age, people are, who demand video proof of everything, there are still millions and millions and millions of people around the world that believe that Christ did exactly what the Bible said, that he rose from the grave. And most of them believe this, not because they were told by their parents to believe it, but because there's a compelling reason to believe it. And so, no, people in the first century were not more naive or more superstitious and more uncritical than they are today. They were just as cynical and hard to convince as we are. In fact, that's part of the reason why Paul wrote what he wrote here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to start looking at verse 12. (laughs) Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Here's where we come face to face with the universal objection that people have had From the very beginning until now, this universal objection is simply this. Dead people don't come back from the dead. That's the objection. By the way, when I was an atheist, I said the same thing. That's what the way it was then and the way it is now. Dead people stay dead. This This wasn't something new. It's something that everybody knew then. The Romans knew it. The Greeks knew it, the Jews knew it. In fact, the the Jews who believed in the ultimate general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age when God would finally come and judge the world, they, they didn't believe that people could come back from the dead in the middle of history. That's why the Pharisees rejected Christ. They didn't believe that dead people come back from the dead at least until the end of time. And so this is the what is called the scientific objection that people have and has had from the beginning. And many people's initial response to the news about Jesus coming back from the dead was simply, that's just preposterous. Just like Thomas, I just, I just won't believe it. Why? Why is it such a big deal to us then? I mean, why is the resurrection so important to the Christian faith? I mean, isn't it enough that we just love this person called Jesus and love what he stood for? Isn't it just enough for us to just learn about him and learn to live like him? Isn't it enough for us to study him and, and follow his example to make a world, make the world a better place? That's what many people, including those who call themselves progressive Christians, tell us today. That those who call themselves Christians but deny the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible, they they will deny that Jesus actually was God in the flesh. 
Those who would use their Christian faith in a way that that is more about self-improvement rather than, than worshiping and honoring Christ as king. They would argue that the resurrection really isn't that big of a deal. It's not that important. In fact, most of them will tell you that they don't even believe in a literal resurrection. They believe that the resurrection is a spiritual story that's symbolic of something else that serves as an example, but not a real event. And they believe that you can be a true Christian and deny the reality of Christ coming back from the dead. But here's the thing. That's just simply not true. In fact, I want you, to, want you to notice what Paul says here. He wrote, beginning in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Paul says if Christ was not actually raised from the dead, if he didn't come back, and the resurrection isn't real, then all of our efforts to preach the good news and all of our efforts to evangelize the lost and to build churches and to go out and share the hope that we have in Christ and do the things that we do in the world around us, all of that is in vain. All of our ministries, all the work that we do is nothing but a monumental waste of time and energy and resources. Even worse, if the resurrection isn't true, your faith, it says, is in vain. It doesn't matter if you think Jesus is is God or just a good example. It doesn't matter how Jesus might have treated people. If he didn't rise from the dead, what you believe about him and how that affects your life is actually pointless, is what Paul is saying. It's meaningless. And so the progressive Christian view is right out the window from the very beginning. It's it's a false teaching. And notice what Paul continues and says. He says, if we are found, he said, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Paul is saying that if it's true that Christ has has not been resurrected, then then we're not just wrong about the facts. (laughs) We're false teachers. That's even worse. We're false teachers who've blasphemed God and his character and his nature if Christ actually is is still in the grave. I mean, it's one thing to be wrong about what you believe about God. It's a whole other thing to teach people that perspective and lead them to believe it and then lead them to put their life on it. Paul is saying is if we're wrong, then we're leading people to their doom. That's, That's worse. The Bible speaks very harshly against those who teach false things. And Paul is saying is if Christ didn't come back from the grave, then we're false teachers. And then he continues and says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It just gets worse. If Jesus was dead, was still dead in the grave, then you, not only is your faith futile, but you still are covered up in your sins. Now, many of you people know that we've been working our way through the letter Romans, right? And and one of the things that the Apostle Paul has made clear in the letter is that God's righteous character demands that we are morally perfect in order to have a relationship with Him. And everyone, as we know, fails to attain that, right? We've all broken the law and under God's judgment and wrath. And the bad news is everyone has failed to do this. Which means, 
we have no hope, especially if Christ is not raised. But Paul is saying is if it's true that Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain and we're still under God's wrath and judgment. We are lost. And then he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I think this is probably the most heartbreaking implication if the resurrection isn't true, right? Those who died trusting in Christ have died in their sins and now are experiencing God's wrath. I mean, if you're alive, at least there's still hope that you might find a way, but those who have gone before us have nothing else to do. Their fate is settled. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then those who died trusting Him are fools and doomed for eternity. And then he goes on to say, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be the most pitied. If Christ didn't come back from the grave, then we're the biggest kind of fools that, because we have essentially wasted our whole lives on a false hope. So yeah, it is a big deal. There's a, there's a lot at stake for us. That's why the resurrection is so important to us. If Jesus didn't come back from the grave, we just got dressed up for nothing. But even more importantly, the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel message that we hope in. The resurrection is essential to the good news of the gospel. Paul wrote, beginning in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance, or essential things, that I have received, that Christ died for, your, for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Notice that Paul says that he preached the gospel to the Corinthian believers. They believed it, and by their faith in the gospel, they are being saved. This affirms the great truth that we hold on to here as, as Christians, is that we are not saved by our efforts to make God love us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul preached the gospel and they believed it and are saved by their faith in the gospel. That's how simple it is. That's how beautiful the gospel is. As we talked about last week, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But Paul summarizes the gospel here. He himself received and believed and now proclaims. And, and I want you to notice this summary of the gospel breaks down into four essential truths. The first one is that Jesus died for our sins. The second is that he was buried. The third, that he rose on the third day. And the fourth, the resurrection was verified in history. Jesus' resurrection isn't some fable. It's verified in history. The four truths are indisputable and indispensable parts of the gospel, and they have, they have been that way from the very beginning. In fact, in this little section, Paul wrote these words, for Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, with 
uh, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. These words actually are not original to Paul. He didn't invent this phrase. This phrase about the gospel is not his own original work. Actually, what he's doing is he's quoting something else. What, you don't, what most people don't realize is this phrase is part of an old hymn at that time, which came from the earliest creedal formulas. This is actually one of the earliest confessions of faith. Here at First Baptist Church, our statement of faith, or our confession of faith is the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, and it expresses the foundational things that we believe as a church family, and we give it copies to everybody who wants one, and they can find out, what, what do you believe there? Well, this is, it expresses that, what we believe about Christ and salvation. I personally subscribe to the, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. The reason why is because it expresses in great detail the things that I believe about Christ and the Christian faith. It expresses what I believe about God and about mankind and salvation. And people, when they want to know, well, what do you believe about this or about that? I just give them a copy of it. It expresses what I believe. This confession that Paul is quoting is similar to that. It's, it's an established confession. It's an expression of what the early church believed. And so what Paul is doing is he's reciting established doctrine from the early church. It's what they believed and taught from the very beginning. Now, why is this important? Because what you'll hear is many, many people will say, well, you know, um, the, the story about Christ was something that was made up and it, and it changed over time and morphed into what it is. But the important thing that we need to realize is Jesus died in around AD 33 and Paul wrote this around 56 AD. It's within three decades of when Christ was resurrected that Paul is quoting an established creed or a hymn. You see, these skeptics will say that this myth about Jesus evolved over time, and the Bible has been written down and translated and retranslated, and it's changed, blah, 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 right? I mean, I'm sure you've heard that. If you watched YouTube a couple times, you've seen those videos. But the thing is, is the Bible that we have, first of all, the Bible we have today, that you possess today, is what was written down 2,000 years ago. And this isn't like a pastor's opinion. This is a verifiable fact confirmed by the vast preponderance of scholarship both by religious and skeptical scholars. If, you, if you'll read the work, you'll find that the Bible that's printed today reflects what was written down within, uh, written down 2,000 years ago extremely accurately, which means the Bible itself hasn't changed. And even more importantly, the details about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are just as old as the resurrection itself. Which means Paul, what he writes down, isn't a story that's evolved and changed over time, but the actual details of what people believed from the very beginning. And so the resurrection couldn't be dismissed as some myth. Now, with that, Paul makes it clear that there are some essential things the gospel, you know, to the gospel that we need to know and understand. He says, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and then rose three days later. Those are things that, we, that are essential to our faith. These are things that must be true and that we must believe or we're lost. Why? Because it's the nature of the gospel. You see, the gospel is good news. It's good news. That's what gospel means. It's from the, the word um, euangelion. It's good news. But why is the good news so important? Well, it's because the good news is the answer to the bad news. 
You see, medication isn't good news until you understand the bad news of the disease that the medication cures. You see, the bad news makes the good news relevant. Well, then what's the bad news? Well, Paul alludes to that in the text. He says that Jesus died for our sins. And then later he says, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, then we are still in our sins. So the bad news must have something to do with with our sins. The thing that we need to understand is every person must come to terms with the fact that God is the creator of all things, including all of us. And he created all of us special so that we would have a relationship with him. And the thing about God is that he's perfect, holy, righteous, and just. He's certainly loving, but he's completely righteous. And he created the universe and everything was perfect. But God gave mankind a choice. And that choice was to obey me and live forever or disobey me and perish. In fact, the confession of faith that I quoted, the 1689, writes it this way. It says, God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they'd kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their own creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God has given mankind a choice, and mankind, by his own free will, rebelled against God. Our confession further states it this way. He says, "But but this sin of our first parents fell, by this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. We fell in them, and through this, death came to all, All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all capabilities and parts of soul and body. In other words, our relationship with God, the one that we were created for, has been broken. And we, all of us, were born with a sinful nature, but we, by our own will and choice, have sinned and rebelled against God. And by the way, this isn't news for any of us. Even those of us who want to believe that we're really good people, we know that we're capable of some pretty ugly stuff. We've all done things and thought things and said things that we shouldn't have done. And we all know that there are things that we should think and we should say and we should do, but we don't. And even though that the vast majority of people, again, will fancy themselves as good people compared to others, we all know that there are things that we continue to do and continue to say that are harmful to other people and also an affront to God himself. We're all, by nature, sinners. Well, the bad news about our sin right, is, 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 is that our sin is rebellion against God. And as Paul says in Romans, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who commit sin. And further, it says that those who do such things deserve to die, and the wages, what we earn, is death. The bad news is, is that because we're sinners, we're under God's judgment. But it gets worse because there's nothing we can do to fix it. This is the conundrum, right? You see, when people discover that they're at odds with God, they suddenly begin to resort to the idea that that somehow, someway, I need to fix it. 
that I just need to work hard. I need to try hard. I need to do some good stuff to make it outweigh my, my bad stuff. I need to try to be more loving and be more compassionate. I need to practice the golden rule. I need to, to be more religious. I just need to go to church more. I just need to, 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 to never do bad things ever again. I just need to punish myself to, to do penance. But the, bad, but the bad news to that is none of those things will help. You see, none of the things that you can do can change your relationship with God. As Isaiah told, tells us that our good deeds, the very best that we can offer God on our own is but trash before Him. And it's not that our good deeds aren't good. It's just that our sin is that horrific. And so the bad news that we are sinners under God's wrath with no hope of saving ourselves, we're helpless and hopeless. That's the bad news. And once you understand the bad news, then finally you can understand and receive the good news. And what's the good news? Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and then rose again on the third day. That's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. You see, our sins are so horrific and so pervasive and contaminating that we can't make up for them on our own. And that sin separates us from God, but God in His love and in His mercy, by His own will, made a way for us to be saved. He sent His eternal Son into the world to live the perfect righteous life that we're required to live but can't. And then He willingly traded places with us on the cross and endured in His body the full weight of God's justice and wrath that you deserve. And on the cross, Jesus literally and physically died for our sins. Jesus died to make atonement for our sins. Church, let us, if there's one thing that you remember from Easter is that Jesus shed his blood so that you can be washed clean. Jesus died for you. That truth is essential to your faith. But as the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Without the sacrifice Sin remains. Jesus, the Lamb of God, took upon Himself all of your sins, past, present, and future, and died the death you deserve so that you could go free. He died for you. Church, remember that, right? In fact, say this with me. He died for me. Right? Don't just hear that. Believe that. And then it says that he was buried. And this is important, right? It's, it's not like that he died and somehow his body was lost and, and, he, and he disappeared and they made up a legend, right? He was buried because he was verifiably dead. A lot of people will say, well, he swooned. He, he faked his death. I'm going to tell you something. If there was one thing the Romans were good at, it was killing people, right? He was verifiably dead, and so no, his body wasn't lost. No, somebody didn't trade places with him. Jesus, that man, was dead. And they buried him and laid him in a tomb of a rich man, which was public knowledge. Now, why is that important? Well, that dispels the myth that somehow they forgot where Jesus was buried and they opened the wrong tomb. Or that somehow that they lost track of his body. And guess what? They also posted guards at his tomb, which means, no, his disciples didn't steal his body. So there is no question that he was dead and buried. But then it says, three days later, on the first Sunday after his death, Jesus rose from the dead literally and physically. This is not a 
spiritual resurrection as some people would, would assume. This is not a symbolic expression. Both physically and literally, Jesus actually came back to life and he walked out of the tomb that he was laid in. And this proves several important things to us. First of all, it improved what we've been talking about all morning, that, it, that sin and death had been conquered. The great enemies that we all will face is our sin that separates us from God and the death that haunts us all. Because guess what, brothers and sisters? We're all going to die, right? It's all going gonna, gonna to happen. And, and, and the thing is, is for some of us, it'll be faster than others. I mean, and I say this in a sobering way that I, I, every year when I get my youth group together, especially when the group gets larger, I, say, I tell them, I say, look, the way that this works is one of you will not make it to 30. It's just, it, it's a statistical reality. There, I have lost a couple of kids that I have watched grow up as teenagers. They didn't make it to 30, right? And then guess what? Some of us will make it to like 100. Right? Why? I have no idea. I'm not God. But the, but the reality is, is all of us will die. Death is one of the great enemies. It's a monster that haunts us and hunts us. And in the past, before Christ, there was no escape from it. But Christ's physical resurrection proved that neither sin nor death has the final word. As we sang, it has no, the grave has no claim on us. They were defeated. As Paul quotes scripture and says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ's resurrection proves that sin and death have been conquered. Secondly, Christ's resurrection proves that the payment for our sins has been accepted by God. It's vindication that the cost of what it took to set you free, that payment was made and God accepted it on your behalf. Justice has been accepted. Justice and the wrath of God has been completely satisfied. As the hymn writer puts it this way, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Christians Christ's resurrection proves God's justice has been satisfied and payment has been accepted. And third, it proves that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And who did Jesus claim to be? God incarnate. God in the flesh. Now, there will be people that will say, well, well Jesus never claimed to be God. The people who say that just really haven't studied the Bible. I, I mean, just read the book of John. John opens up declaring that Jesus is the Word and that the Word is God. And then later on in, in the book, we, we see Thomas declare when he sees Jesus alive, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus himself several times calls himself Yahweh or the great I am of the Old Testament. He did claim to be God and this resurrection proves exactly what he claimed to be. And then fourth, the resurrection proves that he can do what he promised to do. That's what faith is about. It's about the promise that God has made us. And what did he promise? To save us from our sin and the wrath of God. That's the promise that was made. That was, the, that was the promise of the good news. As Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
Paul says that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he goes on to say, and guess what? I'm the worst one. I think he's wrong. I think I am. The resurrection proves that Jesus can do what he promised to do. And the promise is that if you will put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. And so Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are essential parts of the gospel and essential to our faith. But there's one more point that Paul makes here that helps to transform this story of the gospel from just a simple thing of hearsay to absolute truth. Remember, everyone knew that people don't come back from the dead. They knew that just as much as we know it. And just because someone says something happened doesn't mean that it actually happened. Just because a religious person said something happened doesn't mean that it actually happened. I mean, even here in Boron, everyone gossips about everyone, right? And, and, and we know, or at least we ought to know, just because somebody posts something on Facebook and just because somebody told you that somebody did something doesn't mean you should believe them, right? <clears throat> it doesn't mean that it actually happened. We all know, or we ought to know, that we should corroborate those stories and double-check the facts Because not everybody tells you the truth. There must be proof to the claim. Well, Paul doesn't say the resurrection happened, just take my word for it. He says the resurrection happened and it's been verified that it happened. I know that dead people don't come back from the dead, but guess what? Christ did. And it was verified that he came back from the dead. Notice what he says. For I delivered to you as first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And He appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, He appeared to me. Paul, in this part of the text, is declaring not only did Jesus do the impossible by coming back from the dead, it's been verified historically that he did it. I know that dead people don't come back from the dead, but Jesus did, and I can prove it, is what he's saying here. I can prove it because of the overwhelming testimony of the people who saw it, the eyewitnesses. And Paul begins to list the eyewitnesses. Paul says he begins with a testimony of Jesus' closest followers. That's where he begins. He said, he appeared to Cephas and then the 12. And this is important because these are the men who were with Christ and lived with him for three and a half years. They saw the miracles. They listened to the messages. They they saw what he did. But yet when Jesus was arrested, what did they do? They all ran for their lives. They all ran and hid. In fact, Peter even verbally denied that he even knew Jesus three times. He even called down a curse on his own head. I I never knew that guy. These men gave up on Jesus. And And then when he died, they believed that it was all over. The Messiah was dead, and now they were outlaws on the run. And so they hid themselves. They didn't go visit Christ's tomb. They didn't go visit other believers and try to comfort them and tell them to keep the faith. They were hiding. But history then records these men somehow becoming bold enough in their faith that they were willing to be persecuted and tormented and tortured for what they believed to be true. In fact, history records that all of them except the Apostle John were martyred 
were killed in horrific ways as they confessed their faith in Christ all the way to their dying breath. What would take these cowardly men and transform them into bold men of faith? They saw the resurrected Christ. You see, it's been said that people will die for what they believe, but people won't die for what they know to be a lie. It's a proven scientific fact, by the way. They witnessed him with their own eyes. Even Thomas, who said, I won't believe, saw him and believed. Did you know Thomas actually went on to India and he actually became the missionary there and preached the gospel there and he was killed and martyred for his faith, proclaiming Christ's resurrection all the way to the very end. Paul appeals to the testimony of his followers, but he doesn't stop there. He then appeals to the testimony of the crowd. He, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. This was a very huge statement because it was like saying this happened and, and the entire student body of Boron High School was there to see it. And if you don't believe me, then you can go ask them. That's the equivalence of what he's saying here. Paul is saying is 500 people saw him at one time and most of these people are still alive. And so if you don't believe me, then you can go track him down and ask them yourself. You see, if this wasn't true, all a person would have to do is track some of these people down and then get their denial and say, that's that. It didn't happen. But no one did. In fact, no one can actually, no one in that in first century could dispute that it happened. Again, Mark Dever is helpful. He says, a denial of the resurrection doesn't figure into the early Christian apologetics. The, I mean, excuse me, the early anti-Christian apologetics. Those people who were against Christ didn't use that as an argument. He says they would, that would have been the obvious thing to attack if you wanted to stamp out this fledgling religion but no one attacks it. Why do you think that is? I think it's because too many people knew that it was true. There, were, there may have been bewilderment over its significance, but the fact of Jesus' resurrection was never denied. Jesus clearly was raised from the dead. The argument was simply about what it could it possibly mean. And so Paul appeals to the testimony of his followers and the crowd, then he appeals to the testimony of Jesus' own brother. Notice he says he appeared to James. James, historically, was the literal brother, little brother of Jesus. Right? He grew up with Jesus. And the Bible tells us in the, that, that Jesus, in his early days, that his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, <clears throat> in this, this gospel, the Gospels, we discovered that his family thought he was actually out of his mind. They didn't believe in him. But then James becomes someone who not only believes, but became a leader in the early church. And he became someone who wrote one of the books of the Bible. By the way, the book of James that you read is Jesus' brother. And he was martyred for his faith. And as he was being beaten to death with clubs, he was praying, God forgive them, for they don't know what they do. The same words of Christ. Now what would transform a brother who didn't believe and to someone who would die for their faith. I mean, I mean, think about this, okay? Now, this is kind of strange, but think about this. If your brother came to you and said, hey, just want you to know that I'm the Messiah, I'm the, I'm the Son of God, well, what's your response going to be? Shut up. What are you smoking? Right? Right? 
And, and what would they have to do to convince you, right? What would they have to do to convince you that it's true? Coming back from the dead would probably do it, right? That's the point. Paul points to James' testimony as proof, right? An unlikely person believing became a believer. And then he points to one of his most ardent haters, right? He appeals to someone who hated Christ and Christianity. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appealed to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Paul reminds his audience of something that was widely known in the first century, that he was once a man who hated Christians and hated Christ. And he's one of the Jews and one of the Pharisees who thought it was their duty to go out into the world and put an end to this Christian movement. Paul arrested Christians and he had them put to death. I mean, think about this. Like, you've done some bad things in your life, but you've never done that, right? Paul arrested Christians and had them killed. He hated what they stood for and and believed that they were all false teachers and it was his duty to God to put an end to this. But then one day he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians there and he encountered the risen Christ and everything changed. Everything changed. So what could possibly turn a hardened enemy of the faith into the greatest evangelist that has ever lived? A man who endured hardship and torture and ultimately was was executed by the Romans for his faith. What could bring about such radical transformation in the life of someone like him? It was the fact that Jesus did what no one else had done before. He came back from the dead. And so Paul appeals to many different types of eyewitness testimony to prove that Jesus did the impossible. He died, was buried, and rose from the grave. But then there is one more testimony that Paul appeals to to prove his claim, and that is the testimony of Scripture. Notice Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The idea of someone dying for their sins, you know, and coming back from the dead was not a first century invention. It was God's plan of redemption all along that was revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament predicted what would happen. Isaiah 53, by the way, most Jewish synagogues, when they go through their annual reading of the Scriptures, they skip over Isaiah 53. I don't know if you know that, okay? Because hear these words of the Old Testament. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces and was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then Psalm 1610 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or you will let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus was not left to rot in the grave. And then finally, Hosea 6.2, after two days you will revive us, and on the third day you will raise us up, that we may live before Him. 
And I can go on and on and on and on, but the scriptures predicted the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul points his readers to that, and he points them to the overwhelming eyewitness testimony of his followers, right? the, the crowd and Jesus' own brother and the chief hater of Jesus himself. The people in the first century knew exactly what we know today. Dead people don't come back from the dead. But Jesus not only promised that He would, He did just that. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the tomb and three days later rose from the dead literally and physically. And then He was on the earth for 40 days and appeared to eyewitnesses to prove beyond a doubt that He was not just some person who was lost to history. He did what no person had ever done before. He took his life back up and rose from the dead. And it's because of this evidence of history that the faith in the resurrection of Christ has endured until today. In fact, by the way, I don't know if you realize this, the resurrection is the best attested to an event in all of ancient history. In fact, people today don't reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ based on the evidence. They actually reject it in spite of the evidence. What happens is people reject it because they've made a commitment philosophically and intellectually to the idea that no way, no how, I don't care what the evidence says, no one ever comes back from the dead. Even if the evidence demonstrates that that's the only possible conclusion. Not to mention the supernatural work that happens in the life of believers further proves that Christ himself came back from the dead. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you as one who believes who was once just like Paul, who hated Christ and Christians and anything to do with faith. So brothers and sisters, there are skeptics then and there are skeptics now, and they all hang on the same objection, and they are all confronted with the same exact issue. The evidence for the overwhelmingly proves that Jesus did the impossible. He died a horrific death for your sins. He was buried and rose from the dead, demonstrating that He is what He claimed to be and that He can do what He promised to do. And all we need to do is simply put our hope and trust in Him and Him alone. So now, what do we do then with this, this Easter as we prepare to go on our Easter break? Most of you, I know that I know your kids are really excited about this. Well, let me just remind you what Paul says. He says, I preach to you, you received in which you stand. And so there are three things that we need to do with the gospel. First of all, we need to receive it and believe it. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus rose from the grave, which proved he is what he claimed to be. If you're not in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith and your hope and trust in him. Believe the gospel and the Bible says you will be saved. It's that simple. You don't have to suddenly become a good person. You don't have to really try really hard and get all your life straight before you come. He says, come. Repent and believe the gospel today. Secondly, you need to stand on the gospel. As we've been saying, you need to rest in the gospel. Again, because what people will tend to have a tendency to do is to get around religious people who will just say, well, now that you're a Christian, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you better not do this. And and what ends up happening is now suddenly you're believing that you can earn God's love by your own efforts. And, and that if you suddenly aren't perfect, then God's going to hate you and kick you out of the kingdom. What we need to realize is the same gospel that brought us into the kingdom keeps us in the kingdom. And that is we're holding on to Christ and Him alone by faith. Rest, stand in the gospel, trusting in what He has done. And then 
Finally, we need to proclaim the gospel. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that the world needs. Brothers and sisters, you know, you're, if you watch the news or TikTok or Facebook or whatever, you're inundated with all that's wrong with the world around us and all the people who are telling you what the solutions are. Politicians promising this or that. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, by the way. You're, there are politicians promising things that you want to hear that will never happen, by the way, right? And there are corporations trying to sell you stuff that makes you believe that your life's going to be better if you'll buy from them, and all they care about is your money, right? And, and there are lots of different ways that people try to be fulfilled in this life, and I'm going to tell you right now, what you see around us is not the problem. It is the fruit of the problem. The fruit of the problem, the, the, the problem itself is sin, and that we're all covered up in it. And the only solution there is, is Christ. The world needs Jesus, and we need to be the instrument that proclaims that. And so with that being said, brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you, if you're not in Christ, put your faith in Him. If you are in Christ, rest in Him. And then let all of us as a church go out into the world and share the hope of Christ this Easter and beyond. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.